Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for watching ADH TV now. As I keep telling you, you can watch on your television by downloading the ADH TV app on the App Store on Apple TV or the Google Play Store. Now, if I can work it out, you can. And you can watch us on your phone or your iPad. Just go to the App Store and search ADH TV. It's free to watch. Tonight on the program, I'll be joined in the Sydney studio by the eminent Margaret Kaneen, SC. They throw everything at her, but she always prevails and never backs down. Now she has a new book about to be published called The Boxing Butterfly, A Life of Conviction, where she chronicles the legal fights she's been in and her new chapter of being a defence barrister. In a world where the presumption of innocence is chipped away at every day, we need more Margaret Canines. She'll join me shortly from our ADH studios. Also tonight, We'll be joined by Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. You heard him last week. We brought him on again due to popular demand. He articulates very fluently the green left lunacy, which is eating away at our country. We now have the energy crisis, don't we? It's an area where many of us for years now have been lone voices, basically saying that if we go down this continual path of demonising coal and gas, Australia will experience skyrocketing power prices and blackouts. Tin-ear politicians refuse to listen, instead signing us to this ridiculous renewable utopia where we'll be able to meet a whole nation's energy needs from sun rays and gusts of wind. Honestly, every political leader has failed to tell us the truth, and that is without coal or gas, our energy grid will collapse. They all now cite the Russian invasion of Ukraine as the reason for the energy crunch. That is false. World leaders rushing to sign up to net zero emissions and refusing to build new coal-fired power stations are causing massive economic harm to hard-working families. These are the same world leaders who promised to create stacks of jobs and to strengthen manufacturing. Yet these green policies ship jobs offshore. It is that simple. We will discuss all that and more with the IPA's Research Director, Daniel Wilde. As always, though, you can have your say. Email me, alanjones at adh.tv. Look, it is fanciful to imagine that the Albanese government can navigate their way around this awful mess of debt without embracing the urgency of tax reform and expenditure cuts. I've long argued that with 250,000 Commonwealth bureaucrats sitting on their bums in Canberra, why can't they fashion sensible and simple proposals for both? Because we can't go on the way we are. You'd have to predicate any argument for reform by asking a few simple questions. Can we any, can we any longer afford superannuation tax breaks, which are expected to cost almost $90 billion over the next four years? Should we be exempting food, education and health from the GST, which costs revenue well over $20 billion a year when we've got a welfare system to look after those in need? Why don't we collect the unpaid hex debts? Or do we allow students to go on borrowing and not repaying? Unpaid hex debts currently total $96 billion. Why are we subsidising foreign outfits who own wind farms? Renewable subsidies are almost $3 billion a year. 
The welfare bill increases every year. It was 196 billion in 2020, 196,000 million. How many Australians are taking the taxpayer for a ride? You can't go to an accountant or a lawyer or a dentist or get your fence painted or the gutters cleaned for nothing. But you can go to a doctor, not really for nothing, because the taxpayer forks out. Medicare in 2012 cost 19 billion. In 2022, 30 billion. Tony Abbott talked about a Medicare co-payment. New Zealand have one. Why can't we pay something before the bulk of our visit to the doctor is charged to Medicare? If we're talking about expenditure, are we seriously suggesting there are approximately 250,000 public servants in Canberra and they can't identify room for cuts in those monumental amounts? I've only mentioned a few. It's beyond belief. There's no use complaining unless we can offer reform, which is urgently needed. There are spasmodic comments that tax reform and expenditure cuts are needed, especially in the wake of the March 29 budget littered with further spending. The new Treasurer Chalmers complains about the spending and debt mess he has inherited. Well, he can do something about it and argue for cuts in spending. And if he doesn't, does he think it's sustainable that the deficit for the coming financial year should stay at $78 billion or more? What will we see in the October cost of living relief package? More spending. I'm not saying that things can be implemented without serious debate. But you think of the hundreds of millions of dollars that was spent as the government's response to the pandemic without any debate. And we're now heading for a trillion dollars plus of debt. Heading towards, indeed beyond, a trillion dollars didn't intimidate either leader during the election campaign. By election day, the coalition had pledged another 13.2 billion of spending. Labor, 8.9 billion. If this can't go on, which it can't, what is the new government going to do to stop it. I remember speaking some years ago to the New Mexico State Senator Bill Scherer on a tax reform proposal that he had modelled, but as always with these things, had been ignored. His proposal in our language was to abolish all taxes, the lot, income tax, company tax, fringe benefits tax, payroll tax, capital gains tax, the GST, tax on petrol, tax on insurance, stamp duty, the whole lot, and replace all these taxes with a simple, 2% tax based on everything that is sold or traded on the open market. Now, of course, like anyone who challenges the catechism of climate change, suggest this kind of tax reform and you'll be dismissed as a crank. You know why? Such a proposal would eliminate most of the bureaucracy. What Senator Scherer proposed and had modelled was what he called a hard reboot of our tax system. In pub language, 2% to be paid on every sale of anything. Now, I've seen figures that have been worked over a million times. Forgive me for taking financial year 2014 because no modelling has been done since, where a 2% tax collected on all sales, state and territory, would have yielded $1,121 billion. It's been modelled many times. $1,121,000 million. At the time, that produced a surplus of $948 billion when the debt at the time was $246 billion. These are 2014 figures. But they would have returned the government to a surplus of $700 billion. Now, of course, the nutters will be shaking their heads and the deniers will be totally dismissive. But when I spoke to Senator Scherer at the time, he made the accurate point that such a proposal would return America and Australia to budget profit. 
He described the existing tax system there and here as, quote, so full of exemptions and carve-outs that in New Mexico, the Tax Act was over 1,000 pages. Well, good luck. Our Tax Act, with its amendments, started out at 22 pages in 1915. It is now more than 14,000 pages, running into 995 sections. I defy anyone to tell me that they've read the Tax Act. They can't. It's impossible. And if they did, the bulk of it couldn't be understood. But we persist with it. Senator Scherer said at the time, it's time for New Mexico to take charge and lead somewhere, unquote. Well, who in Australia will take charge and lead somewhere? I'll tell you why such a tax reform proposal will go nowhere. It would diminish, dismantle and destroy the power of politicians and bureaucrats. Don't kid yourself. They're here for themselves, not for us. Now, look, Margaret Keneen is a remarkably distinguished and, dare I say it, courageous Australian. She's a senior counsel, which is the modern Republican version of the old Queen's Council, top of the profession. For most of her working life, she was a Crown prosecutor in New South Wales, though, as she says in her recently published book, The Boxing Butterfly, she's no longer a Crown prosecutor. She's on the side of the defence, quote, representing my clients, she said, one at a time. She's got a wonderful sense of humour. She needs it. The Boxing Butterfly is a riveting story for people who enjoy memoirs, true crime and a behind the scenes look at high profile criminal cases. These are fascinating insights into cases that Margaret Keneen brilliantly and successfully prosecuted and more recent ones which she defended. The book records a long succession of convictions against rapists and murderers. There are personal and emotive recollections of over a dozen landmark cases. She also has plenty to say about the so-called Independent Commission Against Corruption, whom she took right to the High Court and won. Boxing Butterfly is a career chronicle of Margaret Keneen SC, which honorific, I have to say, disguises the fact that she's got a Bachelor of Laws degree from UTS, a Master of Laws from Sydney Uni, and in 2017 was awarded the 40 Years Meritorious Service to New South Wales Medal. She's the mother of three adult sons, and she's a new grandmother as well. It's an extraordinary story. The Boxing Butterfly, the author Margaret Canaan joins me. Margaret, thank you for some of your time and sharing this with us, but for sharing an extraordinary story with your readers, can I begin by asking you, when you've been involved in cases, prosecuting people for the sexual abuse of minors, sexual assaults on underage girls, murder, triple murder, manslaughter, many cases of child abuse, what is the emotional and psychological effect of all of this on you yourself, absorbing every detail as a Crown Prosecutor? Alan, it's hard to say what I'd be like had I not had that life. But one thing it is, has always done for me is make me realise that my life is, is very blessed and lucky. So it, it does at least enable me to uh, see small problems in proper perspective, not to be a whinger, not to be too much of a worrier about uh, things that, that might happen in my own sphere, because they're nothing compared to the suffering mm. that other people Wonderful. have to maintain and, and put up with. The Boxing Butterfly, who came up with the title? My co-author, Andrew Urban, and it's, it doesn't uh, take too much imagination. It's not, it's not, I'm not really Cassius Clay. 
but I am a bit of a boxer, and the butterfly, of course, was the reference by a former ICAC commissioner to how much fun it is to go anywhere you like in ICAC. Mm. It's like pulling the wings off butterflies. Dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. Well done, Megan Latham. Those comments can be attributed to you. So to all you viewers out there who want to navigate your way through the detail of these extraordinary cases, we'll just look at a couple of these things that we might tonight uh, Margaret, the Canaan shooting. Now, you write that this fellow Canaan, this is astonishing stuff, and his three accomplices were, quote, armed on their way to kill a King's Cross identity. When Constable Patrick and Senior Constable John Fotopoulos stopped their car and got out of it and gave chase to this bloke on foot, Canaan turned around and shot at the police officers, wounding Constable Patrick. Senior Constable Fotopoulos returned fire, shooting Canaan in the buttocks, legs and wrists. As Margaret says, it stopped Canaan's murder spree. But when the matter came before Magistrate O'Shane, you say, Margaret, that she, quote, described the pursuit of Canaan and his co-offenders as stupid, reckless and foolhardy and indicative of police harassment of youth. How did you handle that? I wasn't in the case at that at that point, but it was so it was so dreadful that the the police hadn't been commended for their extreme bravery, and and indeed the the uh, the crime spree did stop. Canaan had killed at least five people by that night, and he was out to kill a, a, a sixth or another one. They were, they were all, he and his mates were all tooled up and ready to go. And so that inevitably, undeniably, saved a life. Yes. So, so it was uh, terrible. But, but he was eventually convicted, wasn't he, of shooting Constable Patrick and sentenced to 12 years. After that Weigel Park, though, and White City shootings, Canaan was then prosecuted, was he not, for murder and received three life sentences, and the 12 years were on top of that. So some vindication. But, Margaret, you write about after the shootings, when Constable Trek was seriously wounded, Senior Constable John Fotopoulos underwent alcohol and drug testing. And, I mean, a minute amount of cannabinoid was found in his bloodstream. What happened? Yes, yeah, so, such a small amount that had he denied partaking in any uh, drugs, that would have been accepted. It, it could have been just uh, passing someone in, in the street almost. It was so minuscule. But he, he admitted having had a, a puff of some uh, joint a week before. And his, his honesty was not at all rewarded. He was boarded out of the police. But he had been the hero that had saved his partner's life that night. Yes, returning fire. And returning fire, almost killed. On a murderous criminal. Yes, yes, do, doing what, the what we expect the police yeah. to do. But he, and this bloke had just shot a policeman and was embarking on a killing spree. And Fotopoulos was discharged from the police force under a cloud. Do you keep in touch with these men today? I, I don't still, uh, but, but I, I keep my eye on uh, Constable Patrice, who's still in the police, and I haven't seen uh, Mr Fotopoulos mm. since, but mm. it was the most touching scene to put yeah. them together after many years mm. after this case, and, and they, they were it, they, it was an emotional reunion because they hadn't been allowed to speak to one another. I bet. Look, then there were the gang rape trials of Bilal Scaff, his brother Mohammed, and several other young men. You appeared for The Crown, 2002. Too horrific to detail here the gang rape of girls 
and young women from 16 to 19 years of age just before the Olympic Games. But in all, Margaret, I'm right, am I? 14, 14, one, four males sexually assaulted an unfortunate young woman for over six hours. Why did these trials attract such publicity? There was a, a racial element in them, and it wasn't the first case that had involved people from that particular race, but it was the first case where the complainants had said that the race, racial aspects were brought into the rapes by the attackers, by, by the awful things that they said, which uh, mentioned their race. And, um, and, and indeed, the girls were called Aussie pigs and, and similar types of words. So, so that, but that was the, the trigger, I mm. think, for, for certain... Uh, but then you faced also... That, their, their supporters gathered in numbers outside the court daily, shouted abuse at you and your instructing solicitor. Is that intimidating? Not really. Uh, not, not really. It, if if they'd, they'd, they only called me a uh, the Arabic word for a prostitute, now, had they called me uh, bad at my job, I might have been offended. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sense of humour. You've got to have it. I mean, the trial ended after about five weeks with guilty verdicts. The detectives and the young woman's family were desperate to get her out of the court and into a waiting car without being pursued by any of the hundred or so members of the press. Margaret, you write in the book that you decided to go out and say a few words very slowly to give time for a policewoman associated with the case to bundle the slightly built victim out under an overcoat. Pretty clever stuff. That's right. We, we knew we couldn't get out of there without uh, being, going before this large media throng, something big, bigger than I'd ever seen. But we knew that she, she was small and she'd be able to be bundled out if I took the attention. And so I very slowly delivered words that I thought of, I thought up beforehand. I thought I can't, I can't say anything about the verdict being correct, but what, I, what should be unobjectionable is to commend the quality of the police investigation and the fortitude of the victim. So, so no, that, nothing there. And that should, gave them time to get out. It did, but but it was later criticised. I know. So, I know. so uh, I should say that in the book is a beautiful letter from the mother of Miss C, a victim of the scaff rapes, which says in part, "Dear Margaret, there's so much we have to thank you for. I really don't know where to begin. Your amazing strength of purpose was such an inspiration to Miss C, the daughter, and a source of comfort." for the rest of our family. Your determination to see justice prevail gave hope to us, even when the defence lawyers were doing their worst. Your compassion and unfailing optimism inspired. Your wicked sense of humour lessened tension and gave us a wry smile on days when I thought we could collapse under the weight of anguish we all felt. For these reasons, so many more others, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You're an incredible woman and deserve naught but the best life can offer. Thank you. Margaret, are you constantly astounded at the elegance with which simple people, straightforward people write these beautiful messages? It's been so rewarding. That, and that's, that's, that is the, why I do it. It's fantastic to be able to help people at the worst times of their lives. But isn't it poignant and, and the, the, the way that they can express themselves yes. so beautifully? And I've had many such letters, of course, and that makes it all, all worthwhile. Look, a lot of, fed, lot of talk about a federal ICAC. Uh, you copped this. You had the guts to take the New South Wales ICAC to the High Court and you succeeded. 
What are the limitations of such an outfit? Well, they, they don't have any limits and they keep seeking uh, more, more work. There was, there was a headline in The Australian the other day saying New South Wales ICAC demands power over, uh, over uh, pork barrelling. So, so they just, they're asking for more and more, um, more power to, to determine things that should be determined politically mm. and democratically. But uh, so, so the, the limits should be that these bodies ought not be allowed to choose their own uh, targets or their own scalps. They should be given uh, their work by some other investigator. And it should all be done in, in private, just as the police in, make, make their investigations in private. And what about you in the book with a, a reference leading on from that? to the treatment of Gladys Berejiklian and her private life being splashed all over the papers. Is that the role of ICAC? Well, isn't it terrible? We what? still don't sit more than six months after those salacious hearings, which were, which were just terrible. There was no need for it. That the ICAC just could have announced that there was a relationship uh, between these people. That they didn't have to investigate it publicly, no. like they did. Could be heard behind closed doors. Yes, but we and, and it was. But but then the bits are cherry picked to be repeated for the maximum impact and grace, greatest humiliation for the, for the poor. Absolutely. Poor people, but That's... but we still don't know. No, we, we still, still don't, don't know. know why we why New South mm. Wales has been denied its democratically elected premier. It's hard enough to get fine people to give themselves to, to, to service, public service, quite, quite. and there we had the the daughter of non English speaking immigrants, a woman. Uh, who who was uh, unblemished in her service, and no one will ever accept that she's a corrupt woman, no matter what. That she'll go the same way as the predece her predecessor premiers, yes. uh, who have both yes. been exonerated, mm. even though ICAC came after them. And and if if people can't see that this is a political assassination machine, well, that they're not being honest. Absolutely, we could talk for now for forever. I wanted to times run out, but. You describe, Margaret describes in the book about Cardinal Pell, which she describes as an iniquitous miscarriage of justice, the worst, she says, in Australian jurisprudence. She says, apart from the conviction, relying on one witness alone, the circumstances surrounding the alleged assaults are just too implausible for any reasonable person to accept. And she makes the point, what is it about the complainant whose word alone was accepted over the evidence of the Cardinal the other boy present who had before he died denied to his mother that anything untoward had occurred and the Monsignor, whose job was to accompany the Cardinal. And Margaret asks in the book, why does one witness have a monopoly on the truth? Margaret, it's an outstanding piece of writing. I don't know how you've remembered all that to put it all together, but thank you for talking to us. Congratulations on the splendid work you do in the service of your country. And for many of us who've known you for a long time, we don't take it for granted and we don't forget. We admire you and we praise you and we're grateful for your courage. Thank you so much, Alan. I do appreciate it. Not at all. There she is. Margaret Kneet's outstanding read, The, the Boxing Butterfly. <laughs> Wonderful title for a book, isn't it? Margaret Kneet and The Boxing Butterfly. You can order your book now online. Look, it is true in relation to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle that there was an early fascination about the union. Indeed, everyone from the Queen down showered them with support. Who can forget that extraordinary wedding ceremony? when the minister spoke forever and the music bore a striking resemblance, not to a royal wedding, but rather to the kind of event that encourages young people to gather in what's known as a mosh pit. 
Well, the fascination quickly waned, and as the Platinum Jubilee demonstrated, the prevailing British sentiment seems to be one of contempt. The British people didn't seem to care that almost as quickly as they arrived, they were gone. I thought I'd share with you an excellent piece by Maureen Callahan from the New York Post, which seems a relevant and splendid postscript to last weekend's Platinum Jubilee. Writing cuttingly, Maureen Callahan begins, and I quote, Finally, Harry and Megan got what they deserved, booze. That smug smile at long last has been wiped off Megan's face. Actual tears, not her usual crocodile variety, welled up. She was visibly unnerved. Makes sense, says Maureen. Like all malignant narcissists, Megan's only capable of feeling sorry for herself. Lest we forget Megan, the Grand Duchess, standing among impoverished, starving African children and griping to a broadcast interviewer, not many people have asked me if I'm okay. So Maureen says, may I be among the first to ask? So Megan, how are you feeling now? After two years of accusing the British royal family of everything, from wishing Megan would kill herself, to being racist toward her unborn baby, to being held literal prisoner by royal staffers, to accusing Kate Middleton of making Megan cry, while branding themselves as eco-warrior humanitarian mental health experts. Motto for be kind. Well, Maureen says, these two get their comeuppance. It's exquisite. Turns out the royals know a bit about mental health and manipulators themselves because they've deployed the only tactic that works, the grey rock. It's like dealing with toddlers, Maureen Callahan says, having tantrums. You just ignore, ignore, ignore until they tire themselves out. The royals, she says, have played the long game brilliantly, putting the Sussexes in a no-win situation. Decline their invite and look mean, petty and vengeful, slighting the alien queen on her historic jubilee, accept and get the coldest of shoulders before an audience of billions. Get the message now, kids. How gratifying to see Harry and Meghan shuffled off to the cheap seats in the second row across the aisle from Charles and Camilla, William and Kate, none of whom cast a glance their way. How elegantly, writes Maureen Callaghan, the British royal family has slid in the knife. No official portraits with the Queen, no appearance on the balcony, no access to any royals of consequence in public. She says the message is as clear as Megan's blood diamonds, you know, the ones the Duchess of Woke wore, a gift from the Saudi Crown Prince after the brutal murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. She writes, Harry and Megan are royals now in name only. Hey, they always said they just wanted to be regular people, right? Harry and Megan weren't even in attendance at the buffet luncheon after Friday's service. Will and Kate were, though. Instead, those two slunk off to Frogmore Cottage, that dump they spent millions of taxpayer funds renovating before fleeing to Montecito. One can imagine Harry and Megan frantically doom-scrolling through their media coverage while drowning their sorrows in kale juice and victimhood, plotting how they might commodify this latest injustice. After all, writes Maureen Callaghan, they'll need the money. Charles stopped paying the bills over a year ago. Spotify isn't happy. Neither's Netflix. George Clooney, Oprah, even Gail won't take their calls. Even worse, this Jubilee weekend was supposed to give Harry tons of material for his big tell-all memoir. All he's going home with is a sad view from the second row. Maureen Callaghan in the New York Post, I reckon, speaks for tens of millions of Brits and most people around the world. There must be some nervous corporate executives, though, 
who've signed a 100 million US dollar Netflix deal with these two, Spotify 75 million, a book deal with Penguin Random House for Harry's memoir, how old's the bloke? 37, 25 million, Better Up, a mental health outfit, 122,000 a year, and speaking engagements. What on earth would they say at $100,000 a throw? I make this point. What grasping, covetous individuals these two appear to be. All that on top of the reported eight to 10 million pounds his mother left Harry when she died, on top of a reported inheritance from his great-grandmother, the Queen Mother, estimated at about 25 million pounds. So they bunked down in their nine bedroom, 16 bathroom American home with round the clock security. They may as well enjoy the money. Many would argue legitimately that may be all they have. When people place money above family, they're embarking on a dangerous and damaging spiral. Well, let me go as we did last week to Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs because, unlike many, he speaks from a position of detailed research on critical issues, not a question of making it up. And he joins me. Daniel, thank you for your time again. Now, tell me about this new poll commissioned by the Institute of Public Affairs, which has identified that a majority of Australians support building nuclear power plants. That's right, Alan. Lovely to be with you again. And as you just mentioned, over half of Australians uh, support building uh, nuclear power. And what was so interesting about this survey is how widespread the support is across um, the community. For example, uh, some 70% of coalition supporters want nuclear power, over half of Labor voters. And get this, even four in 10 Greens voters want to have nuclear power, which is more than who oppose having um, nuclear power. Now, of course, um, this comes amid Australia's energy crisis. This is the worst energy crisis we've had in 40 or 50 years, which is entirely caused by bad public policy at the state and federal level by both Labor and coalition governments. What we're seeing in terms of shortages and price hikes, this is what happens under a policy of net zero oh, emissions yeah. by 2050, which is pushing Absolutely. coal off the grid. We've got more and more solar and wind, which, which can't get the job done. And you've got all this pressure on gas uh, because coal isn't there anymore. So what Australians are saying is, look, we've got two kinds of energy technology that can get us reliable baseload power. Coal, which governments are making unreliable, uh, un unaffordable, and nuclear, which governments have banned. So we need to get yes. nuclear on, or at least have yeah. a look at it, and we need to get coal on there. Yes, I just made that point about coal. I mean, how could it be viable when the bias exists towards renewables to the tune of, what, $30 billion in subsidies between now and 2030? Just for the benefit of our viewers, and repeating this again, Section 14A of the Environment Protection and Diversity, or Biodiversity Conservation Act of 1999, says that the Minister for the Environment is prohibited from, quote, approving an action consisting of or involving the construction or operation of a nuclear power plant. Now, as you've said, and I've said a thousand times, this is widely used nuclear power across the developed world. 70% of France's energy, 20% of the US, 15% of the UK, 15% in Canada. We've got, we've got uranium coming out of our ears and we export it so that others can have clean, cheap power. You're 100% right, Alan. We, ex we have about a third of the world's known uranium deposits and we have a, you know, about 2,000 years worth of coal. 
yet we export 80% of our coal, we export all of the uranium that we have, we don't use any here at home. So we're happy to ship it overseas for other countries to use, but apparently it's not good enough for Australians to use um, at home. So you're right about the ban on um, nuclear power. But as you say, there's also this bias against coal. We've yes. got the most recent policy yes. of net zero emissions, but don't forget the reams and reams of regulation and uh, red tape, whether you want to explore for coal, whether you want to dig up coal, whether you want to set up a new coal fire um, power station. And the key point is simply this. If we don't have reliable baseload power from coal, we're going to lose our manufacturing sector. This is already happening. We've had aluminium smelters, both the Tomago one in the Hunter Valley and also uh, the one we have in Portland in Victoria, which were required to um, reduce and discontinue some of their operations as a result of the shortages of power supply. So this is becoming um, a real existential threat to our domestic sovereign manufacturing capability. Now, why is that so critical? Well, it's critical for jobs. It's critical for us to produce things. But don't forget, we're also in the Asia-Pacific region. It's becoming more hostile, more uncertain, and we need to be able to shore up our domestic industry and our domestic manufacturing because we don't know what's going to happen to these international supply chains. We saw the, the massive disruption through COVID where we couldn't produce the equipment that we needed to keep us safe. And now we're seeing this again uh, as we have China becoming more bellicose in our region. We're losing our ability to manufacture our own products and that's making us more and more uh, vulnerable in this uh, very hostile part of the world. Outstanding, absolutely outstanding. Just come back to this poll because it established also that more Australians across every age group support nuclear than oppose it. 52% of 18 to 24 year olds support it, only 19 oppose. 47% of those aged 25 to 54 support building nuclear plants, only 25% oppose. And 62% of those aged 55 and over support building nuclear power plants. In other words, the people in the parliament are not representing the electorate. Well, you're right. And, and the way I would describe it is real Australians know the score. They, they know what's happening to our country. And they say, look, if you want to cut emissions, if that's your thing, if you believe that that's what public policy, policy should be focused on, then at least we need to have a debate about nuclear. It needs to be on um, the table in addition to the reliability and affordability that it can provide. And what it also shows, Alan, I think is quite often young Australians, we think that they're lost, we think that there's no hope, we think that they've, um, you know, completely swallowed the narrative of the green left. But I think this shows that there is hope and there's lots of sensible young Australians, which, as you say, a majority support Australia building nuclear. Don't forget, that's despite decades of uh, negativity, um, almost yes. scare campaign. Yes. Uh, yes. Information being there. So yeah. I think this is a, a one-sided public argument. No recognition given yes. on the other side, all renewables. And again, that poll coming back to it, it cuts across all income groups. Now, I note 71% of Australians earning $100,000 and over, 71% support building nuclear plants, only 16% oppose. 55% of Australians earning between $45,000 and $100,000 support building nuclear plants, only 22% oppose. And 49% of Australians earning less than $45,000 support building nuclear plants, 25% oppose. So, I mean, we've got this net zero emissions nonsense by 2050, and you're saying this energy crisis has been brought about by the net zero emissions 2050 target, and it can only be solved 
by reliable, affordable baseload power from coal and nuclear. I mean, I make this point a thousand times and I'm sick of saying it. I can give them an energy policy in one sentence. The energy must be available, it must be reliable, and it must be affordable. And renewables are none of those three. They're none of those three. Yeah, I mean, both sides of politics remain committed to net zero. And yeah. it's time for uh, Peter Dutton uh, and Little Proud to listen to the real Australians. They know what is going on. Don't worry about the teals. Don't worry about these high-income, uh, wealthy, you know, university-educated elites that are living in Kuyong or Wentworth or wherever. They're going to be fine. They can take care of themselves. They've got enough money to deal with their electricity bills. They're not working in the coal sector. They're not working in manufacturing. They've got safe and secure employment in the public service or as lawyers or in big business. Yes. They're completely looked after. You need to think about the real Australians in the outer suburbs and in the regions of this country who are incurring the cost of this. I mean, if you're talking about a, a 5 10 15% increase to your electricity bills, that is a massive deal to someone, a family with three kids, with a mortgage in the outer suburbs yeah. running a small yeah. business. How are they meant to get on? Well, what Yet about... These are the, these are the we know we need coal and nuclear. I mean, what about the schizophrenia, though, amongst so people who are right in the centre of this? I mean, what do you make of the comments by the chairperson of the Energy Security Board, Anna Collier, who's acknowledged that renewables can't provide the baseload power that Australia needs? She had this meeting yesterday with Chris Bowen, the federal minister and state energy ministers, and they resolved to, quote, force retailers to pay generators to invest in power projects that can quickly be called upon when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. But it can't be nuclear, can it only be coal and gas? If we're going to force retailers to pay for the Energy Security Board's plan to make sure we've got reliable supply, it means higher energy prices, doesn't it? It does. And Alan, they've been mugged by reality. I mean, this is, this is net zero in action. This is what you've been saying. Uh, for many years, this is what we've been arguing, that if you force unreliable wind and solar onto the energy market, you're going to get these consequences. If you ban coal, uh, if you ban gas, if you ban nuclear, if you make it impossible for the exploration to take place and you're subsidising billions of dollars for intermittent wind and solar, this is the inevitable Yeah, they're forcing them out of the market. They're forcing them out of the market. Now, in, in you're right. We finally now have business and labour and all the other advocates They've been mugged by reality and they're forced to confront reality, which is that wind and solar can't get the job done. Mm. But, I mean, there's a zealotry about this, isn't there, the way they go about it? Just utter these edicts like Matt Keane in New South Wales. I mean, your research fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs, Dr Kevin Yu, has said at the end of the day, our leaders can't escape the immutable fact that if you're counting on renewables, then you're counting on blackouts and explosive power price hikes. That's the guts of it, Daniel. It is the guts of it. And look, there's another important dimension to this debate, which is, OK, we've got all these costs associated with net zero and renewable policy, but what about the benefits? Remember, we're told that this is going to save the planet. We're going to cut our emissions uh, and we're going to transform the nation's temperature and climate. But the important thing to remember is that every 16 days, China emits more carbon than Australia does in one entire year. So the reality is that we're getting all of these significant economic and humanitarian costs from the policy of net zero, but without any discernible environmental benefit. And that's the other key part of this. And that you mentioned Matt Keane and the other um, zealots of the climate movement. They will not acknowledge that simple reality that what Australia does makes no noticeable difference to China, none, whatever. Yeah, and 
Well, are people waking up? Are people waking up? The comments by Innes Willocks, the chief executive of AI, the AI Group. It's a leading industry organisation representing businesses in a broad range of sectors. Wasn't he an enthusiastic proponent of net zero? But he's now saying only coal and gas can provide salvation from the current crisis. I mean, is it too much to think that even if it's only privately? Big business labour and the union super funds might eventually be mugged by reality and wake up to what some of us have known for years, that net zero is wreaking havoc on our energy system. Well, it is wreaking havoc, and I, I think you're 100% right there. The big business, the titans of industry that have been the loudest voices in favour of net zero, because many, don't forget, many of these big businesses benefit from the massive subsidies to renewables Correct. and the yeah. banks, yeah. they benefit yeah. from these carbon yeah. market trading schemes. They're making money hand over fist at the expense of working class and lower middle income Australians. That is the effect of these renewable policies. It doesn't save the planet. It's a, it's a regressive redistribution of wealth from the working class back to the elites. Why do you mm. think it's the people in Kuyong mm. that back it in, but not the people in Penrith that want it? That Good is the exact you. reason um, for it. Good so on I you. Think, I, I think, though, that we are winning and we've just That's got to it. keep going. We will. You're outstanding, Daniel. We'll talk to you next week. There he is, Daniel Wild. He's the Research Director at the Institute of Public Affairs. And it's time we started listening to this sort of stuff. I'll tell you what, the rubber has hit the road. See you next week, Daniel. There he is, Daniel Wild. Pleasure. Thank you, Alan. Look, it seems that with everything else going on in politics, Queensland has managed to escape the critical spotlight that should be turned on our northern state. There is no upper house in Queensland. It was abolished in 1922. This week, the Queensland government announced a commission of inquiry into DNA testing at the state-run forensics laboratory. Now, it mightn't sound much, but bear with me, it sure as hell is. For months, the Queensland government has been under all sorts of attack from the media and a much improved Christopher Fully opposition about potential DNA testing failures. The issue is what are called DNA testing thresholds. In a submission to the Women's Safety and Justice Task Force, the Queensland Police Service said it had requested additional testing on 47 samples relating to sex offences, which the testing lab initially said didn't have enough DNA for further proceeding. Well, here's the rub. Police are now re-examining all sexual assault cases dating back to 2018, which were initially deemed not to have enough DNA evidence for further processing. Now, DNA testing, as you know, is a crucial element in the criminal justice system. The argument is that not all DNA samples were being fully tested due to a testing threshold. The police argue that results may have been possible through additional testing. The forensic biologist, Dr Kirsty Wright, who ran the National Criminal Investigation DNA Database, has labelled what's been going on as the biggest forensic disaster. She said, and I quote, there is nothing anywhere in the world that is like this. And in terms of the scale, how many years have these issues gone on for? She further said, we are talking about potentially false acquittals, wrongful convictions, and really serious and violent offenders not being apprehended when they should have been and maybe having the opportunity to offend again. She said a full inquiry is needed to understand what has been happening inside the lab, for how long it's been happening and what is needed to fix it." Unquote. Now, there may be criminals out there who were found not guilty because their DNA didn't meet some testing threshold. Now, under Queensland's double jeopardy provision, 
A person who's been charged with a serious criminal offence and is acquitted by a jury can be charged a second time if new evidence emerges that was not available to prosecutors at the time. This could well cause the reopening of many cases and if mistakes have been made, then the government could be liable if those mistakes meant that innocent people had suffered psychiatric injury because of them. Well, that's not all. Earlier this year, the Queensland Premier was forced to appoint Tony Fitzgerald, who headed a previous infamous corruption inquiry in Queensland 35 years ago, to sort out the mess of the Crime and Corruption Commission. Who knows what's going on, except that it has a rank smell about it. There is a Queensland Integrity Commissioner, Nicola Stepanoff. Her resignation as Integrity Commissioner contains sinister allegations of interference in her role. She'd been cracking down on Queensland's lobbyist sector, including a widespread failure to declare meetings or the attendees at meetings with ministers and government officials, as required by law. An audit of the lobbyist's register for the 2021 financial year alone found more than 100 breaches. Individual lobbyists were put on notice. One of the main offenders, according to Dr Stepanoff, was an unnamed former political advisor. Now, in an understatement, Dr Stefanov said she knew she would upset a few people. Well, cop this. She'd sought approval from the Public Service Commission, which has budgetary control of her office and the Department of Premier and Cabinet, for a forensic IT examination of a laptop and mobiles from her office. She suspected there was a leak. It was just before the October 2020 state election. Premier Palaszczuk has been criticised for engaging two former Labor state secretaries to run her campaign. Well, the head of the Public Service Commission and the then Director General of Premier Palaszczuk's department refused Dr Stepanov's request to have the laptop examined. Instead, it said that Public Service Commission officials told Dr Stepanov, the Integrity Commissioner, to stay at home. On March 15 last year, these officials allegedly overrode the security codes to gain access to her office, seized a laptop and mobile phones from her office and later wiped the contents from the laptop. It's now being said that some of the documents deleted from the laptop allegedly related to, quote, ongoing legal proceedings and investigations raising secret legal issues, the least of which is the destruction of public records. Dr Stepanoff gave testimony to the Queensland Parliamentary Economics and Governance, Governance Committee. Minutes of the hearing reportedly revealed part of Dr Stepanoff's testimony in which she said, quote, the Public Service Commission, without my knowledge and authority, confiscated mobile phones and a laptop provided to the Integrity Commission staff, which contained public records I am responsible for. The Public Service Commission authorised, she said, the indelible deletion of public records of the Integrity Commission from the confiscated devices, unquote. Premier Palaszczuk has repeatedly refused Dr Stepanov's request to have her treatment investigated by an open inquiry, such as the one being headed by Tony Fitzgerald. The Integrity Commissioner, Dr Nicola Stepanov, has resigned. She'll leave the job next month. These are but two snapshots of the Queensland Government. Concerns about DNA testing are now the undermining of the Integrity Commissioner. 
It seems Queensland is in need of a very big broom. But you see, the Executive Council, which is meant to cast an eye over government decisions, is headed by the Governor. The Governor happens to be the former Chief Medical Officer, Dr Jeanette Young. What are her qualifications? It was Shakespeare's Hamlet who said, something's rotten in the state of Denmark. Well, something's rotten in the state of Queensland. Well, before we go, there's plenty of talk that Joe Biden is finished come November. That is, the Democrats will be thrashed in the midterm elections. I predicted this last year when, amongst other things, you had this geriatric president who could barely string a sentence together, preside over the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. And who, the same man, has allowed America's southern border to descend into an immigration crisis. Now it seems the mainstream media have finally come around to this understanding. They're starting to finally admit that Biden is economically illiterate. He and Kamala Harris have no answers or solutions to the economic struggles facing Americans, low wage growth and stubbornly high inflation. Recent polls show that the economy is the number one issue in America. I have a hunch that after our ARBA announcement this week, that the rising cost of living here is the number one issue for Australians as well. Forget all this do-good at chat about action on global warming when China and others are only increasing their emissions. It's sideshow alley in the grand scheme of things. Making sure families can afford to live and that jobs are not lost, that should be the central focus of governments right now. For Biden, with the midterm elections in November, his slim congressional majority looks all but gone. According to Real Clear Politics, which aggregates the country's most credible polls into averages, only 35.5% of Americans approve of the Biden handling of the economy, compared to 60.4% who disapprove. And as here, grocery prices are surging, the cost of beef and pork is up by more than 14% compared with a year ago, bread is up by almost 9%, milk by 15%, cereal by 11.9%, rents continue to rise at the fastest pace in decades, a record 11.3% last year. It is a disaster. But when Biden addressed the nation about this runaway inflation, he merely told Americans that he could taste their frustrations. What the hell that means, I've no idea. Let this bloke loose off the auto cue, and that's the sort of drivel he goes on with. The man cannot be allowed to run for office again. Biden's Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, has attempted to shift the blame for this inflation entirely onto the Russian invasion of Ukraine. She's kidding. That's what you call a deflection. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, conceded last week that she made an error in 2021 when she said inflation, which has only recently dropped from a near 40-year high, posed merely a small risk. The left-wing Yellen told CNN last Tuesday, I think I was wrong then about the path that inflation would take. Now, these people are on big salaries, but are incapable of predicting the economically obvious, a bit like our Reserve Bank Governor, the million-dollar Philip Lowe. They make these predictions, which the market and households and businesses take away as gospel. And then when it doesn't go to plan, they sometimes apologise, though our bloke doesn't, and certainly don't expect to be held to account. That's where Jim Chalmers is spot on. There needs to be an independent review of our Reserve Bank. The world is in very uncertain economic times. We need the best leadership available. Have we got it? How can you answer yes? When the leader of the free world, Joe Biden, 
is a cognitively deficient disaster. Well, that's it from me. <laughs> you're not disasters, you're wonderful viewers. Thanks for tuning into ADH TV. It is a long weekend. Please enjoy it. So I will see you on Tuesday night. But for now, good night.